I'm going to get to my message. Uh, I, I preached a message I hadn't planned on preaching a minute ago, which was very important. But I'll talk to you about some things that are on my heart. And uh, I want you to listen, not for the words that I say, but I want you to listen to the spirit in which I say it, okay? Um, you know, all that has been going on in Alabama and other parts of the world about the same-sex marriage issue has, caught, has stirred up within me great emotions, great, great emotions. It seems like that um, almost every article has something to say about same-sex marriage. It seems like almost every television program or interview has something to say about same-sex marriage. We've just been flooded with information. We've seen those who are adamantly and openly opposed to it. Then others who have tried to shame people who are opposed to it by saying, well, you just like you were back when there was slavery and when there were civil rights and an issue. You're right back where. And all this stuff, the emotions that I have felt, I'm just grieved. I'm grieved. And I'll just be honest with you, I'm sad. I'm really sad that that we've come to this place. It's heartbreaking. Do I have any hatred or animosity for those who choose to marry a person of the same sex? Do I have any hatred or animosity? No. No, not at all. To be honest, I realize And some of you will not understand what I mean, but most of you will. The reason I'm sad and my heart's broken is because they're deceived. They're deceived. They really are. They're calling right wrong and wrong right. And they really believe in what they're doing. And it's heartbreaking. It's sad because we know what the Bible says. But let me tell you a thing that disturbs me. Only 3.5% of the people in America embrace the persuasion of homosexuality, lesbianism, same-sex, transgender. Only 3.5% of the American people actually have that lifestyle. That means there's 96.5% that do not have that lifestyle. In Alabama, only 2.5 or 2.7 of the people in this state are of that persuasion sexually. But see, we have allowed a very, very small minority of people that God loves, that I love, that Jesus died for. And they're sinners just like we were sinners, but we've come to the cross. But we've led that small group of people through the legal system define marriage, redefine marriage in America. Can you believe that? Less than 4% of the people through the court system have redefined marriage in this nation. It used to be between a man and a woman. Now it's between a woman and a woman and a man and a man. Now, what does that do? That makes me sad. It, may, it grieves me. And, and, and how do you think 
a holy God feels about it. Oh, he loves those people. I love them. Jesus died for them. Do you understand that? And just because we oppose their lifestyle, we're not bigots and we're not hateful. Amen? You know what they're trying to do? It is totally, I, I never had understood it till this morning. They're saying, we're just like that when we oppose slavery. By the way, slavery was a moral issue. It violated scripture. God is no respecter of persons. And so when we degraded a person to be less than another person, slavery was a moral issue, but also it was a legal issue in the right to vote. But wait a minute. This is a moral issue. While slavery violated the word of God and showed respect to persons, it was wrong. This violates the word of God in that it says that a woman can be married to a woman and a man to a man. So they're both moral issues, but one uh, was forbidden by God. One, one was wrong and this was wrong. And both of them violated the scriptures of God. And so what we've got to do is this. We just got to pray that the Supreme Court, when they meet, and they're going to be meeting, and they're going to decide, and people are 95% sure they're going to decide to legalize same-sex marriage in every state. If they do that, then legally it's done. People have a right to oppose it. Probate judges have a moral right to refuse to issue licenses. If they're willing to lay their job on the line, then they need to do that. We have the legal right not to marry people of same-sex orientation. We, we, we are going to put in our bylaws that uh, people, all people are welcome, but that we will not marry people of same-sex, uh, we, we will not perform same-sex marriages, and we're going to put it in the bylaws of our Constitution in order that the court system cannot force us to come against our legal things that we have in our Constitution. Also, one of the reasons we have our new members class, if it's people who are of that persuasion want to join this church, we say they're welcome to come, but no, you cannot join until we wouldn't know more than we let two people living in adultery join. You can't join until you repent and get right with God. So that's why we have a new members class. That's, that's part of the filter. But the main thing is this, I'm grieved. My heart's broken. I'm sad. I'm sad that we've got to where we are, but this is where we are. So as a church, we've got to be stronger. We've got to be more loving. We've got to be more outspoken. We've got to take a stand. We cannot compromise. But we can never do it with a wrong spirit. If you do, you're not doing it in the spirit of Jesus. You have to respond to people in love. Never compromising. Never compromising. But still having the right spirit. And still speaking up that it is wrong. It'll never be right, and we'll never accept it as a people. The courts may say it's right, but we say it's wrong, and we'll never accept it. Amen? Amen. Well, I, I planned on speaking this morning on forgiveness, and I'm going to if I ever get there. But <laughs> tell you another thing that's grieved me, and these two go together. 
It's what's been going on with NBC News, NBC Nightly News. Brian Williams. It used to be on NBC. NBC News with Brian Williams. The number one news program on, on network stations, okay? In 2003, he made up a horrendous fabrication, a big lie, that he was shot down in a helicopter and he and some other people had to be rescued. It never happened. It never happened. But now here's a person in central focus in our nation who has sinned, violated the trust. But now the question is, how do you respond to somebody like that? How do you respond when somebody that's close to you sins? How do you respond? You know, uh, I, I, I don't read the newspaper. I look, look at the comics, but I don't read the newspaper. No, I don't read the newspaper. I read the sports section, but over where we were staying, they'd give you a condensed-ish version of the New York Times. They'd get it, and it'd be about five pages, and all the major news stories were in it, and they'd put it when they brought you breakfast to eat. It was hard having to eat breakfast when they brought it to you. But anyway, <laughs> I got to reading about Brian Williams and this story. And you're not going to believe this. And a guy named Donald Brooks wrote a story in the New York Times on rigorous forgiveness. And I said, well, here's a liberal fiction to talk about, you know, uh, all the people that are closed minded but no, he, he, talked, he gave four illustrations how you respond to people who've sinned. How you respond to people in places of public trust. Not only just each other, but four ways you respond to people. And I'll be honest with you. It's just like he'd gotten it all out of the Bible. It was one of the clearest things I've read. I've read it about three times. And so... Uh, this morning, I'm going to speak to you about experiencing God's wonderful forgiveness and deliverance. But then next week, I want to follow it up with this, experiencing Christ's forgiveness for others. Because I'm going to tell you something. Our whole life is full of forgiveness. I'm telling you right now. And if you don't know how to receive God's forgiveness... You're never going to get off first base. And I'll tell you something else. If you don't know and learn how by the power of Christ to forgive others, you are going to be tormented for the rest of your life. There's so many bitter, angry people who have not even thought about forgiving. All they've thought about is revenge. But me, as, as followers of Jesus, we have to know how to receive and experience God's forgiveness. But we need to know how in Christ to experience the forgiveness of other people. And you're not going to grow spiritually until you learn how to receive God's forgiveness and until you learn how to forgive others. Well, this is going to be... Uh, shortened up a little bit because we're going to do a wonderful thing. We're going to have the, the Lord's Supper. But I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 32. This is one of the greatest pictures of experiencing the forgiveness of God and his deliverance anywhere in the Bible. Isn't it amazing? In the Psalm, there's the seed laid out 
that is fulfilled in the New Testament about how we experience God's awesome forgiveness and deliverance. And boy, the psalmist, man, he had, he, 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 David had had an encounter with God. I want you to look at verse 1. This was a psalm of David, and, and, and he talks about the wonderful, amazing forgiveness of God. Look at what he says on the screen. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. I think David was looking back on his sin. He said, man, I'm going to tell you something. It's great to be forgiven. It is awesome to be forgiven. It is wonderful to be delivered. He said, blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. You know, there's a, there's a truth here that's very important. David used the words whose sin is covered. In the Old Testament, now stay with me, in the Old Testament, their sins were never removed. They were only covered. The sacrifices they offered every day that one sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, it did not remove their sins. It simply covered their sins for another year. But wait a minute. That all changed when Jesus came. When Jesus came, our sins were no longer forgiven, covered. When Christ comes to live in us, we receive his forgiveness and the blood of Christ is applied to our sins, guess what? Our sins are not covered. They are gone. They are washed away. They are no more. You know, praise God, our sins aren't just covered. They're gone. You see, Revelation 1.5. I I was reading this one day, and it, it got a hold of me, and I just started weeping. I want you to look at what it said. This blows me away. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's hard, I can't hardly comprehend it. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a description of Jesus. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins. With his own blood. I remember as a little boy, my mom would say, it's time for you to get a bath. Why did we not like baths? They're good for you. And boy, she would wash me down. But you know, when you came to Jesus, you were covered with unrighteousness and sin. But you came to Jesus in repentance and asking forgiveness And you know, he gave you a bath. He washed you from your sin with his own blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You see, our sins aren't covered. They're washed away. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, listen to this. In him we have redemption. Purchased, paid for, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Our sins are not covered. They are gone. They are washed away. And when they're washed away, they're gone. Hallelujah. Knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and blemish. 1 John 1, 7. You see, our sins aren't covered. They're gone. But with the... But we were... But we were cleansed with the precious blood of Christ. But this man, no, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ washes us, cleanses us from all sin. Here's an awesome thing, y'all. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. I'm not going to read the early ones. It says he not only washes them away. He forgets about them. He never remembers them. Look at what it says. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then the next verse. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now here's the awesome thing about God's wonderful forgiveness. No wonder David said, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. He, he thought his, he only knew that his sins were covered. We know that our sins are washed away. They're gone, buried in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered again. That is forgiveness. Now, how you can know you've forgiven another person when you're willing to forget what they did to you and you don't keep bringing it up to them. I never forget this guy. And his wife came in to see me, and she was talking about all the things he'd done, the bad things he'd done during their marriage. And, and, and he said, man, I, I didn't realize it. She said, he said, are you telling me I'm going to have to live with that all my life? She said, you sure are. Aren't you glad when Jesus washed your sins away, they're gone forever, and he'll never remind you of them again? Praise the name of Jesus. Hey, but there's another thing about it. Look at verse 2. Psalm 32, 2. It's about the joy of forgiveness. Not only are our sins washed away, they're gone. Gone. But God charged our sin to Jesus. This is in the second verse of Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile or deceit. Now that says this. Though I, I, you know, though King James is wonderful words, but impute means to charge against. That's exactly what it means. Blessed is the person that God does not charge their sin against them. That is exactly what that is saying. See, when you received Christ and his precious blood washed you from your sin, from that point on, God never has charged your sin to you. It has already been charged to Jesus. Somebody says, well, now you believe in once saved, always saved. Well, what about if a person commits a horrible sin and then gets killed in a wreck and doesn't have a chance to ask forgiveness? You don't understand. When you came to Jesus and he came and washed you from your sin, he washed you from your past sin, he washed you from your present sin, he washed you from your future sin, And from the day you got saved, your sin was never charged to you anymore. It has been charged to Jesus ever since. Man, what a tremendous truth. 
And not only does the forgiveness of God mean that God charges, charged our sin, past, present, and future to Jesus, he turned around and charged Jesus' righteousness to us. And so there I was lost in my sin, and Jesus came, and I, I received his sacrifice. I repented. He washed me with his blood from my sin, and then he, and, and he took all of them, and then he gave me his righteousness so God not only imputes our sin to Jesus, charges our sin to Jesus, he charges Jesus' righteousness to us. That's the gospel. Man, that, there's some, some great verses. Um, look at, I want you to go all the way over to Romans 5, 17. I'm going to skip a couple of those. Turn to Romans 5. He's going to show Romans 5, 17. It shows you here that Jesus not only took our sins, but he became our righteousness. Look at what it says. If by one man's offense, Adam, death came, and through the one, and death for by one man's offense, death came and reigned through the one, much more, now get this, much more than Adam's sin and death reigning, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Hallelujah. You know what grace is? God does for us what we don't deserve and cannot do for ourselves. Does anybody in here want some grace from God? How many of you want justice? Nobody. I want grace. What is grace? God does for you what I don't, we don't deserve and we could never do for ourselves. But it says here, for by one man's offense, death, Adam, wrath reigned through one. Much more. Those of us who receive abundance of grace... And the gift of righteousness. God gives us the righteousness of his son. And the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. You know, I don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve heaven. I wouldn't trust the best five minutes in my life to get me into heaven. But listen to me. Jesus took care of it, my friend. He took our sins on himself and then in turn gave us his perfect righteousness. And that's the forgiveness of God. Not only that our sins are forgiven, washed away and gone, but now we have received as a part of forgiveness the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to Jesus you know, you, can I give you some good news? If you're a child of God, you have experienced his forgiveness. One day you will stand before Jesus. Most likely we'll just fall on our face before Jesus. But he will see us then as he sees us now. He will see us in the righteousness, his own righteousness. If you're saved this morning, when God looks at you, he does not see you in the unrighteousness of Adam. We were all unrighteous in Adam. But when God sees you this morning, if you're forgiven, he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why we can be bold. That's why we can talk about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the power of God. Not that we're anything in ourselves, but we are forgiven. And we are now robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are complete in him. You can't add anything to it and take anything away from it. I am telling you, Jesus is all you need to be saved and to stay saved and to go to heaven and stand in the presence of God. Woo! That beats being lost, I won't tell you that.
That's the wonderful news of God's forgiveness. Well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm getting along. Here, here's the thing. I got to tell you this, and we're, we're go, then we're going to remember his death. How do you receive God's forgiveness? It's one thing for your sins to be washed away. Praise Jesus. It's another thing for you to have the righteousness of Jesus. That is who a child of God, forgiven and righteous. But how do you receive it? How do you receive the forgiveness of God? You know the psalmist showed us in that Psalm 32. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. God loves us so much that even when we're lost and away from him, we're not, we're not saved, he would not leave us alone. He would convict us. Look at this. Listen to what David said. This is the way he felt before he was forgiven. When I kept silent, I wouldn't face my sin. I wouldn't deal with my sin. I wouldn't receive the forgiveness of God. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. He said, the weight of my sin was so heavy upon me, it was like I was dying an early death. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through, through my groaning all day long. He said, I was oppressed by my sin all day long. And then he goes on and says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He said, I was under conviction. The heavy, God's heavy hand was upon me. It felt like my sins were just weighting me down, and I was as dry as a barren desert. That was his condition. He was under conviction. God was dealing with him about his sin. And let me tell you something. You do, you, the way you experience God's forgiveness is when God convicts you of your sin and shows you of your sin, and, may, and, and you realize how awful it is and how it's heavy upon you. Conviction of sin. John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict of sin. So how do you receive forgiveness? First of all, there's conviction, and then look on in the next verse. There's confession. In, in Psalm uh, verses 3 and 4. All right, look, look and in verse 5. Now look what he said. He was convicted. He was broken. He was miserable in his sin. He had no, no life, no purpose. It was like he was a drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. All right. He's getting ready to get forgiven. I acknowledge my sin to you. God, I'm a sinner. My iniquity I have not hidden. Lord, I tried to blame my sin on others. I tried to blame my sin on circumstances. I tried to hide my sin by saying it's not really wrong. I tried to hide my sin by, by blaming it on others or saying that is not true today. He said, I tried to hide it, but I couldn't do it. And so he says here, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I have brought it all out in the open, Lord. I, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He said, I, I said, all right, God, here it is. And he confessed his sin. He confessed them. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave. Oh, the iniquity of my sin. Hey, he acknowledged his sin. He took responsibility for it. He didn't hide it. Then he told, said to God, he said, Lord, 
Here are my sins. And you know what God did? He forgave me the iniquity of our sin. So the awesome, wonderful forgiveness of God comes when we acknowledge our sin to God, confess it to God, admit that it is wrong, and are are ready and willing to turn from it, and we experience God's forgiveness. But it always is in response to the conviction of sin that is brought by the Holy Spirit. Well, here's the last thing. All right, we talked about the wonderful forgiveness of God. We've talked about how you received it. Hey, by the way, let me give you an example of what conviction is and how you respond. Acts 2, verse 36 and verse 37. You've got to see this. Um, in Acts 2, 36 and 37, Peter just preached on Pentecost, and he's told the Jews that crucified Jesus, the same Jesus you crucified is Lord and Christ. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, all the house of Israel know, go back to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know that Jesus Christ, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both the Lord and Christ. Then verse 37, he said, and now when they heard this, now here's conviction, they were cut to the heart like a dagger. The conviction of sin went to their heart. And look what they did. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, listen, I have seen people under such heavy conviction of their sin. They, they would just cry out, oh, my God, what must I do? What must I do? I never will forget years ago when we were in the building, you know, the, we had two worship centers at uh, Cottage Hill. We had the one like looked like the, a pizza hut, you know, with all them funny-shaped roofs, you know. Uh, the one that leaked, you know, all the time. And in those early years, I had a study way back in the back. And to get back, to, to, uh, you had to go down a walk, along a long hall and, and to get to me. And, uh, and I never get this guy came to the, to, the, to the entrance and said, Brother Fred, Brother Fred. I said, I'm back here. He said, I, I got to get saved. I got to get saved. I got to get saved. Lord, this guy was running to get saved. I said, well, I called his name. I said, man, what are you talking about? I mean, you were in the bus ministry. You were religious. You came every Sunday. He said, I don't care. God showed me my sin. He convicted me. And I'm telling you, I've got to get saved. I tried to talk him out of it, and I couldn't do it. (laughs) That's conviction. That's conviction. When God shows you how desperately you need his forgiveness, you're cut to the heart. All right, here's the last thing. I want you to look at Psalm 32. Once you experience God's forgiveness through conviction, repentance of sin, trusting the blood of Jesus, and turning from your sin, then God can lead your life. In Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, this is beautiful. Once you're in fellowship with God, once you've experienced his forgiveness, look at what he says to you. I will instruct you. This is that same psalm. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. Hey, now you're not on your own. You're not trying to live your life in your own power. You've repented of your sin and received the awesome forgiveness of God and his righteousness. And now God says, let me just tell you what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to instruct you and I'm going to teach you and I'm going to guide you And the way you should go, I'm going to guide you 
with my eye. He said, I'm going to be personally involved in your life. I am, you're not going to be making decisions in a vacuum because I'm going to be there. I'm going to be instructing you and teaching you and guiding you in the way you go. And I'm going to guide you with my eye because you've got to keep your eye on me. And then he gives us a warning. Look at the next verse. Do not be like a horse or a mule. Don't be mule-headed. You have no understanding. He said, when I speak to you, don't be stubborn. Don't insist on your own way. Die to yourself. Don't be stubborn. And then you go on to the last verse in that, and it says that once we're forgiven and God instructs us and leads us for the rest of our life, we'll praise him for it. Look at verse 31 of Psalm 32. I will spend the rest of my life rejoicing in you and praising you for forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. We're righteous in Christ. And shout for joy, you upright in heart. I hope today you know the forgiveness of God. I hope you can say to me, Brother Fred, I am forgiven. My sins have been washed away with the blood of Christ. I am a child of God, and I have the righteousness of Jesus in my life. It's so good to be forgiven and so wonderful to have his righteousness and to know that I am free. I am free. He has delivered me. He's my hiding place. He protects me. And I know what it is, Pastor, to rejoice in him and to let him lead me. I pray that you know that. If you don't, don't, don't wait another day. Do what day? I acknowledge my sin. I confessed it to the Lord. Bow with me for a moment.